What's up, everybody? Welcome to How Musicians Make It. My name is Adam, and I'm your host. Today, I'm talking with Scott Agster. Scott is one of my closest friends, and he has been a longtime collaborator. We worked together as the horn section with Nookie Jones extensively and played in many bands together, like the Jack Brass Band, a New Orleans-style brass band in Minneapolis. And Scott's got his... He's just such a wonderful person, a sincere person. He's got a wonderful spirit. He's kind. He's one of the hardest working dudes I know. And he's got a lot of great insights on a career in music. In particular, right now, he's deep in gigging all the time, playing in tons of different bands. And he's also uh, producing for Blue Water Kings which is a pretty big company now that books private events and weddings and farms out a whole bunch of different bands and has a bunch of, you know, basically a community of players in every city that can become a band and play a wedding. Yeah, it's pretty wild how it works. And Scott helps book for that, books musicians, books the events, deals with the clients, and obviously has learned a lot through that. We were on a festival this weekend together in Bismarck, so I got to watch kind of firsthand him working with these students and how awesome he is in the educational setting. And then I got to play with him, and he's just such, such a badass player. He's such a badass player. So we had a great conversation. We talked about uh, animation, early stages of learning, how to animate things, because Scott is into animation and drawing and poetry. And he's working on this really big new project where you know he wrote all these songs that I'm playing trumpet on that are for like five horns and rhythm section. He's got all these Prince guys playing on it. Really cool stuff. And what he's done is he's collaborated with like rappers and some vocalists and some spoken word artists. And he wrote some poetry and it's being read like kind of a story slash poem. It's really beautiful. And the music behind it is this music that, that he wrote that I'm playing trumpet on. So we talk a little bit about that and release strategy and how he's going to go about, you know, building a fan base on Spotify. He's been thinking a lot about release strategy and he's kind of prepping this release with other things. And he's got a lot of great insights on that. He's been doing a lot of research. So we talk about that a bunch. And then we talked about blowing up the educational system. We're, we're at this festival right now in Bismarck and we've been working a festival that looks a lot like a lot of other festivals at the university level. There's kind of a model for it. And Whenever I am encountered by something that is homogenous, my entrepreneurial brain takes over and I go, how could we change this to modernize? How could we modernize this in some way? How could we, how would I reimagine it if I were to do it myself? And I have some ideas on that. I'm doing a little bit of that at Michigan Tech already, but Scott and I talked about that a bunch. Uh, my wife is a band director in Houghton, Michigan. She's changing a bunch of stuff in her program so we talk a little about how, you know, middle school and high school levels could be different too. And that's basically the long and short of it. I want to talk about CDs real quick before I get to the interview with Scott because I sold a bunch of CDs at this festival and I was the only clinician, the only guest artist who brought merch. So it felt weird for me to like bust out a bunch of merch and be like, is there a table where these could be sold at the concert? Which to me is a very normal, it's like a very normal thing. Every one of these things I do, I bring this big suitcase that has lights on it. It's got all my albums inside. It's got posters. 
you know, snap bracelets, stickers, T-shirts, all kinds of stuff, and I just lay it all out. And I got Venmo QR codes, and you know, people sometimes at these festivals will will like, you know, find a student, a, a university student, to do the sales, and that was the case this time. Somebody actually like sold them, and I just sold them for ten bucks each. I usually sell them for more because a couple of them are these huge big band records. One of them is a double double album, Live in Minneapolis, it's called. And I usually sell that for twenty bucks, but you know, I sold them for ten bucks. I made a whole bunch of money, sold about twenty CDs, and made a big chunk of cash on top of this really nice fee that we were paid to do the festival. And I just, you know, like I felt a little weird about it, but I thought I'm not going to feel weird about this. This is I spent a whole bunch of money printing these CDs. I'm here as a guest. It makes sense for me to sell them at the concert. But I want to say, like I wanted to say because this is evidence now like that's building that there are still people who buy CDs and that if you have CDs in your basement, I'm not saying you should maybe necessarily print a bunch of CDs for your next record, but I will say bring them. If you have them, bring them. You got to bring them because somebody might buy them and that's extra cash and then you don't have that stuff sitting in your basement anymore. So that's that's where I'm at. I I've heard from multiple small record labels that I've worked with in recent years, Shifting Paradigm Records in Minneapolis and Ropadope Records in Philadelphia. And both of them said, look, we've actually seen, we we have a network of people who buy CDs. So you should print at least 250 and give us, you know, 50 or 100 and we'll send them to out to our network. For Ropadope, I think it was, I think I gave them 250 of, of 1,000 that I printed on the last record I did. And they have stores. They they went out to stores, uh, and they have a whole network of people that buy CDs. Rope It Up said they actually have seen CD sales increase because they've, and I, I think it's because they've found basically everyone who still buys CDs, and they're marketing directly to them. I think it's a, it's a niche down kind of situation where that doesn't. It's not indicative of interest in CDs going up by and large. But there is there are still people who buy CDs. There's still a community of people who value that and who apparently drive cars from 2004. Bring your CDs to the festival. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Scott Agster. So, how's it going? Good. It's been fun working with you this week. Man, it is always a pleasure to get to see you. Yeah. You're one of my favorite like, people. Likewise, man. Yeah. I don't have any friends in the UP, so oh, come on, that can't be true. <laughs> that can't be true. Anytime I get a call from Scott Eister, I'm like, it's a good day. Yeah, we I, I have what? friends those days. It's been cool getting. Uh, I hope that's not annoying. I've been. I just feel like reaching out every now and again. Not at all, man. I love it. It's been great. I gotta say, I've been enjoying this podcast quite a bit. Oh, nice. So I've been been checking out episodes lately, trying to figure out the streaming music game. Yep. Yep. The release of a new album. Okay, tell me about that. Tell me about your new album. Well, I've been playing on it. You've been playing on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's great. Uh, Minneapolis musicians, music that I dig. I think it's good. Yeah. Working with Jason McGlone over at Hideaway for the first time as cool. a you know as my project, and that's been man, the guy is amazing. So it's been a great experience. What, but, like, what's the concept? Who's on it? 
and then let's talk a little bit about what your plan is for releasing because we've been talking about this a lot. I think this is good. This is good stuff. So a uh, couple different rhythm sections. We got Kirk Johnson, Paul Peterson, Jeff Lacrone, uh, Tommy Barbarella. Ooh. Another rhythm section is Ryan Butler, Pete Sutman, Jeff Lacrone. Um, again, some Tommy Barbarella. Then the little Kevin Gaston way. And then there's going to be another one that's going to be Jeff Bailey, Kavi, David Feely, Kirk Johnson. And then the horns, there have been two different, you know, which you've been a part of. We've mm -hmm. had you on both. I get you on every one I can, for sure. If you let's can go. be down there, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's just been, been fun getting to write and make music. Cool. Uh, some of those guys are Prince guys, Kirk Johnson, mm -hmm. Tommy Barbarella. Yep. Who else? Is there anybody else? Oh, you had Paul P on something, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, Paul Peterson's on half the tune so far. Right, right. Cool. Yeah, nice. It's killing rhythm section. Uh, what is your plan for releasing the record? How many like how many tracks? You, you talked about having maybe two different records from all this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have eight tracks pretty much done. I just have to add some vocals on them. Yeah. It's my first time writing vocals, and I feel like... You know, I, I, I don't know if you know, but I do a little poetry. Like I just, I, I give myself a, if I, an idea strikes me, I'll just creative write That's a cool. page. I've done that for many years too. I don't That's know if you know, we, we never talked about this. I've never talked about yeah. it. I started writing poetry in like middle school and got really into it and have read a lot of poets and like, you know, songwriting is poetry. So I do a lot of songwriting and That's, is that applied it to that, you know, for me, that's kind of the you know, something that's just like a really side, it's just a fun thing from time to time has become like, now I have to come up with some really meaningful lyrics <laughs> on tunes like yeah. I really care about. And it's like, oh. and I didn't start from the lyrics necessarily, you know? Sure. So, so you're writing lyrics to music. Yeah. Versus the concept before the music. You right. Know? Right. So that's, that's been a challenge, but actually a I feel pretty good about what I got now. It's yeah, good. yeah. I like it. And you have T. Michael Rambo narrating one of the things you wrote. Yeah, he's like he's got an intro on a tune, and then he's doing a whole story. That was just I, I was kind of like checking out some Mingus, uh, and it's it's like the icy chill of death is the the track. It's nothing like that, but yeah, yeah. Like that's kind of the was a inspiration for it. That's Charles Mingus for all of you out there. I'm gonna zoom in on my face. That's Charles Mingus. Uh, cool. So you've got lots of heavy hitters on the record. Yeah. Especially me. Adam and, and you you've been thinking about how to release it. We've been talking about it. Are you gonna try to talk to the labels or are you gonna self-release? Right now I've been planning a self-release, but I I guess I haven't gotten there. I'm still have some runway because I think this is gonna be, you know. 2025 okay leading up to 2025 so when I put all the tracks together it'd be 2025 that seems like a long time but the more I like have been checking this stuff out it seems like there's limitless things that I could be doing yep and I'm, just, I'm I always do this to myself I'm like hey it'd be really cool to put some 2d animation on this one and then I'm checking out, oh man, it's really expensive to get 2D animation. Yeah. I'm like, but I like to draw, so maybe maybe I can figure that out. So I'm, And that's kind of part of who I am is like, man, I, let's just check it out. Let's try to do it. You know? Just do it myself. Yeah. Just yeah. for fun. Anima animation seems like 
a really huge like I, I've hired somebody to do some for me and you know like he quoted me a price and then like classic yeah uh, I don't want to throw this guy under the bus because he's super nice he's a great dude but like classic young person move to like super under mm-hmm. under quote yeah. and then come back and be like uh, can I have another thousand dollars and it's like dude that's a lot more money <laughs> and we talked about something way different than that yeah um but it's like it seems like a bear of a thing. It takes much yeah. longer than you might think it would. Spent like two if you're going from sketch. There's lots of tools to help, and I'm like researching this. And the idea that like AI is just going to do it for you is not really real. Not realistic. I don't think so. Yeah, is it? You think it's coming? Oh yeah, it's definitely coming. It's like you know you'll see stuff that looks cool. So like you could like put a filter on a live actor. You know. Yeah, but even that, if you're using AI to generate too much motion, it's like you'll see tons of glitch because it's constantly changing what the picture is. So you see all these like glitches with it. And there's some programs that I'm gonna can I get deep into this for a second? Please, man. I think people are interested in this stuff for sure. Well, this this is just what I've learned recently, and you know, because I've checked a bunch of. There's uh, one program called uh, it's E Synth or something like that. Any rate, there's a program where you have, uh, you take a video, you tell it the style you want it to be in, and then you you do keyframes. So like you could go into Photoshop, take a frame, and then re-realize it in the style of whatever artist you want. Ah. So that kind of helps clear it up, you know, a little bit. But it's still, it's still pretty rough, I think, the technology. So the other route, you make your drawings, you do your keyframes, you clean them up, which takes a long time. Yeah. And then let's say you have some kind of motion happening, like uh, a bird flapping its wings. Yeah. You have programs that'll let you take that asset and move it in real time, like with a pencil on a screen. Yeah, cool. And like animate things by hand in real time, which makes them look a little more real and takes out a lot of the process. So you're like printing it as you do it, sort of like recording your action to the program. Yeah. Yeah. You still have to do all of the frames that go into the bird flapping its wings, but this is just what I know right now. I might find out more stuff later, but sure. That's kind of where I'm thinking I'm going to try to, I'm just going to take a stab at it. And if I can't do it, I can't do it. Yeah. But you're not a total amateur with animation right you've done some 8-bit stuff yeah which came out as like little videos trombone and yeah 8-bits it's kind of a different I mean it's it's all the same concept it's just 8-bit animation you're creating something pixelated and it can be like by definition it can just look not as clean you know because if you're imagining a computer game there's not that many frames in a like a lock cycle but 2D animation, if you imagine it like anime, you know, when somebody's jumping in the air and turning around, there's a lot of smooth motion and dynamic motion happening. So, right, right. So there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. I should say, like, we're eating this pizza. We're in Bismarck, North Dakota. Scott and I are working on a jazz festival for the University of Mary. This is Fireflower. Fireflower pizza. It's really good. Neapolitan. Really good. Neapolitan pizza. This one is the Naruda, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's fantastic. So I'll be eating a little bit during the episode. <laughs> I apologize if you hear me chewing on the microphone. Uh, okay, cool. So we kind of just jump right into talking about your record. Um, 
I want to eventually like backpedal and talk a little bit about yeah, your right. upbringing. No, it's totally cool. <laughs> um, but let, let's let's talk a little bit about how you're thinking about releasing this thing. So we're talking about animation. Mm -hmm. So obviously you're thinking about video. Mm -hmm. uh, what are you thinking in terms of, like I just did an episode on waterfall strategy. We've been talking about that. Um, there's the like release a whole bunch of singles and then release an album thing, release a couple singles and release an album. There's like a lot of different ways that you could do it. What are you going to do and, and like why? So I think I have the perfect plan to try things out right now. Yeah. So I have, I have a backlog of like a ton of stuff and right now I'm, so we've talked and this is why I've come up with from talking to you, listening to your podcast, reading a bunch, is right now I'm releasing some stuff that I did a long time ago on YouTube and uh, Facebook, which was really helpful. Uh, so this one I'm just releasing singles. And then I might or might not take down the singles and just put up a album after that. I'm not sure because it's okay. not like they have a ton of, you know, listens or plays. Well, you can do it anyway because you have the codes. Sure, you have you got IRSRC codes, so you yeah. can you can re-upload them in an album format, delete the old ones, or leave them. Yeah, but I, I, you know, I got artwork on all of them, all the separate tracks and everything. And the things I've I've learned is there's some inherent potential problems with Spotify and CD Baby. Yeah. So with the one, for instance, you know, I've got a buddy Shane Cox that we did, we did a cover of Undone, mm -hmm. you know, as a brand. Shane was on team. the show. Oh yeah. Like five, four or five episodes ago. Yeah. He's yeah. great. He's, he's doing all this cool stuff right now, like heavy metal brass band and all this is cool. Yeah, sweet. But so, so we did this Undone and CD Baby did not submit it right to Spotify. So it was like a month and a half late, you know? Whoa, really? And he, he was, was it because of what he entered in? Not or was it just like a CD baby problem? It was a CD baby problem and there was nothing they could do about it. And he kept kept contacting him and it just eventually it resolved itself. But it's like, can you imagine you put all this stuff into a release date and everything and you're, you're getting all your marketing and planning, all your assets and everything. And then right. you, you got, got a timeline and a half, yeah. you know? Right. So I'm like, at the least, you know, maybe two weeks between tracks if you're gonna go singles. Instead yep. of a week. Yeah. And then the other thing is, if you're really tight on time, I question, I mean, it's probably okay, but if you're really tight on time, one single week, is there any way it's going to get screwed up where you can't pitch or effectively pitch your tracks? I'm like, why not just do it two weeks? You yep. Know, yep. If you're going to do singles. So that's going to be, you know, the next four tracks are going to come out on that. And then I'm going to start doing my trombone duets album, which I've, two new tracks I just made. So this is tracks. just stuff you released, you, you, you recorded, and then you made videos and you released them on socials. Yeah. But you didn't actually release them as a record. That's correct. Yeah. So now you can kind of like pile them up yeah. in advance of this new record that, that we were just talking about. Right. Yeah. I'm just trying to get eyes on my streaming so I can be successful when I put out the this next thing. Yeah, right. Also, like the end of that Trombone Duets album is like, I have some cool tracks that I feel like they're meaningful. So it's like, this one I think I'm gonna do Waterfall Strategy with two weeks in between. Okay. And then that'll take me a lot of the way through, you know, summertime. Right, right. And I, So that's essentially like the next year, because you're talking about releasing the next one in 2025. Yeah. So you're gonna spend the next year just like releasing this back catalog stuff that yeah. was never really released. Right. Waterfall Strategy, some of it. Yeah. Cool. And then really just put together a ton of assets and strategy for 
this next thing I'm doing because I I don't think I've ever put this much I definitely have never put this much effort or you know care into something yet this is the biggest thing I've done so. yeah yeah cool cool I want people to hear it <laughs> yeah definitely so you're priming it's like you're priming people to like go follow Spotify mm -hmm. you know you're also sort of priming the Spotify algorithm a little bit showing it what you do I think that's an important aspect too especially if you'll be pitching every couple of weeks on the waterfall then you'll have a Spotify will have an idea of like oh this is a trombone person you know it's like like you know humans apparently according to Spotify for artists real humans review every single editorial pitch so you can like pitch editorials and real humans will look at it and listen to it I don't know if that's true anymore mm -hmm. that was true six months ago apparently mm -hmm. um, but you know getting into that Spotify algorithm getting into the uh, algorithmic playlists is like a huge so you just got to find all those trombone nerds all over the <laughs> planet you know yeah get them to find you um, cool I kind of wonder I have a question which is like yeah you know my strategy up to 2025 is going to be just saturate with like releases so I have like this other thing I'm doing which is like 8-bit music because it's easy for me to think of a tune get all the sounds write the tune get it so the levels are decent for yep. a release on streaming because it's all 8-bit sounds it's not like it's complex you know everything's already really loud you know sure whatever level it is yeah so the idea there is just to have some extra stuff to pepper in that's that I can just release on my own just in a week, create something, put it out there, see how it does. Cool. Know? Yeah, I like that. So once you're once twenty twenty five hits, what's the pacing for this new set of stuff that you've been working on lately? I think depending on what happens this year, I'm I'm already thinking it's probably gonna slow way down. It's gonna be the same kind of thing. I'm gonna be releasing singles leading up to an album. I'm gonna take more time and just have assets that go different places. So you have like a video asset, you've got a story you're telling. Yep. You know, I have all this B-roll and footage from our sessions, you know, telling a story there, maybe playing some gigs, just doing some everything I can to kind of inform people about, you know, the musicians and the track and the direction and everything. I'm Create some buzz. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Nice. Let's, um, we could probably unpack some more of that, but let, let's talk a little bit about how you became a trombone player, how you became a musician. You grew up, did you grow up in Florida? Yeah. Like Tampa is like where you're from from? Tampa's my home. Yeah. Cool. And your dad, I've learned, is a lawyer. What? Tax was? Was. He was, he was, uh, he was everything except for criminal and family. So it's more like wills, probate. Okay. Things like that. Things yeah. everybody needs at some point. Sure. Are either of your parents like musicians? My mom plays violin, a little bit of piano, and a little singing. She's not a professional musician, but you know she teaches some music lessons now that she's retired. Interesting. So she's yeah, very musical. My dad, you know, would sing in church, but he can't really carry a tune too well. That's okay. Interesting. <laughs> But all, all the kids, you know, we all sang in like a an Anglican choir, like a, a festival choir. choir. Yeah, so Julie, girls choir, Rick, men, boys choir, men, men's choir, and then me through boy choir. Okay. So wow. everybody does stuff. My 
Big Brother is like an opera singer now. He, he's a lawyer, but he he, like, <laughs> he sings opera on the side, and then he's he's been playing in this rock band as well, some guitar. The dad rock thing you're talking yeah. about. So how do you be like singing opera on the side? How is that? What does that look like? Um, well, it's like I don't want to necessarily. So I guess the the things I would say are you know he's a bass. And something that's interesting about opera is a the roles for bass are all older male roles. Yeah. B your instrument doesn't you know stop developing or it continues to develop until you get quite a bit older, mm. right? So like you know he went for he got an opera undergrad degree, so okay. that's where he started. Got a business degree, got a law degree, and now he you know. He works in compliance for Raymond James. So he's going between Tampa and New York all the wow. time. And it's like the opera thing, he's not really making money doing it, but he's doing cool things and it's it's very fulfilling. And he's he's nice. I think he's he's just deciding, you know, at some point is he gonna be moving up the ladder where that starts to take over? I'm I mean I'm not sure. I think that's kind of part of what he's thinking about. Yeah, interesting. But you know, we used to have these discussions all the time, which I'm sure many musicians have with their, you know, brothers and sisters, which is like, you know, I'm making a decent living, but I'm certainly not making the living that he is. Yeah. But then he's like, yeah, but I'm not getting to do music. So now that he's back in New York, he's doing opera, he's doing, he's in the rock band, he's, he's getting to be in music, which I think is beautiful. So it's like, yeah, that's kind of solved for him. Cool. So it's quite a bit of music in the family. Yeah, for sure. That's cool. And you grew up playing music and then went to college. Yeah. So for music, here here's I guess the thing I would say about myself, which I feel is so lucky, is mm -hmm. very lucky, is my plan. So originally I wasn't going to play trombone necessarily. I was going to maybe draw or you know be an author. You know I used to read a lot of Stephen King. I was like maybe I could be a, a author or something. Wow. Like draw cool. comic books or you know that was my my plan as a high school kid. And then my band director was like, so where are you going to college for music? And I was like, do you think I could, do you think I could be a musician? <laughs> <laughs> so where are you going to college for music? Yeah, that, that totally just changed my thinking. And then, you know, at one point I was thinking about going to University of Central Florida, which is, you know, it's a fine school. But my big brother who went there was like, Hold on, so, uh, maybe I, should, I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> he's like, he's like so, cut the tape, <laughs> roll it back. He's like, here's a a CD. He did this for me back when it was hard to get a CD. You know, he yeah. must have mail ordered a CD from UNT. You know, University of North Texas, and they had one of the band at UCF jazz band. And I listened to him, and I was like, oh, yeah, I should definitely go to North Texas. <laughs> You're like, A, B, D, Scott. Let's, let's make sure you make the right choice. He, he helped me get there. That's you cool. know, is, is, I guess I should go there, you know? Wow. But the thing I want to say, because I've been thinking about this so much lately, is once I got on that path, it's like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to major in performance or music ed? Are you going to be a band director? What are you going to do? I'm like, well, I know that I like teaching. Or, or I like the idea of being a teacher. I think it, it would be cool. And, uh, but I wanna play. So I think what I'm gonna do is, I'm gonna start out, I'm gonna get an undergrad in music education, trombone. 
Yep. And then I'm going to go get a master's in trombone. And I'm going to get a doctor in trombone. And then I'm going to play trombone. And I'm going to teach in college. And that's literally what I did. I just went straight through, took that path. Yep. And then I'm playing. I'm not full time anymore. I'm teaching adjunct a couple places, but it really led to an incredible life. And it's like, I just feel so lucky that I had that plan as a 18, 17, 18 year old. Yeah. And I was able to get there. And you stuck with it and it was the right plan for you. Yeah. You feel that way. Yeah. And I, it, there was lucky things along the way that got me there, you know? Yeah, sure. So how much, like what's the balance now with teaching and, and, and playing? It still seems like you're one of the more active performers that I hang with. I mean, like you're playing all the time. Like I was when I was in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. just like all the time playing, but you've got some other little things you pepper. Like in my like I always consider myself a full-time player. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have like a like a full-time job and I was like adjunct teaching different places, I was still like, look, I'm a full-time player. That's that's the, still the majority of my income, even though teaching has become a bigger chunk. It's like I'm like I'm here because I'm a player, you know. Yeah. I mean, I've always kind of thought you have to do everything, you know. Yeah. That's my my mindset and it's been helpful for me. Protective, you know. Well, they're not disconnected, right? Yeah. Like teaching music and playing music is like, like you get, you become a better player when you can communicate why you do what you do mm -hmm. or listen to other people and correct them and then go like, mm, maybe I should work on it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm, I'm totally doing that. Or you're just working on a thing that, that helps you even though you've already worked on it, you know? Yeah. But uh, I guess the way I'm going to answer that is I'm going to say, Probably the biggest, well, the biggest chunk comes from a combination, and I don't know really what the breakdown is because it all comes on the same W9, and I don't have the diligence to itemize out what's what. But, sure. Uh, is producing for Blue Water Kings, which is hiring, booking bands, working with clients, and then playing gigs. So it's, it's those two things are the biggest piece of the pie. And then there's always teaching. Like one of my private lesson nights just goes to offsetting that ten ninety nine balance at the end of the year. Like the taxes, yeah. yeah. Like, gotta pay those taxes. Yeah. So your private lesson night is your taxes money. Yeah, and then it's like I mean you know how it is Minneapolis, the weather's great in summertime, so there's a ton of gigs. I yeah. could, I could be gigging Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, maybe Sunday. You know, it yeah. could happen in in the summer easy. Yeah. And it's like winter time comes there's gigs but it's it's not the same type of thing so it's like the nice thing about the adjunct is it takes over in the winter time when the summer kind of starts to dry up right there's another revenue stream there and i enjoy it so it's yeah let's talk a little bit about blue water kings because you brought it up um how did that gig come about like so for those of you who don't know blue water kings is this company that books all these private events Maybe you'd be better at, at describing this, but essentially books private events, mm -hmm. farms out a whole bunch of different bands, can book multiple events on the same night if needed, mm -hmm. and they have satellite campuses kind of all over in different cities. Or maybe satellite uh, producers like yourself yeah. who book the musicians in those cities and sort of help plan those events. So they're essentially franchised in an interesting kind of way yeah. uh, without any kind of brick and mortar, right? Uh, how did that come about and how accurate was that description? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I think it blew up pretty quickly. I mean, it's, it's, 
the first thing I would say is, you know, I say this to clients is like, you're like, well, how do I know who I'm getting in, you know, for my wedding or yeah. for my corporate event or whatever? Yeah. Is it the people singing on stage? It's like, well, it's this pool of musicians that plays together all the time. You know what I mean? So it's not just like some random, it's not like it's an office job. It's a great network of people that are some of the top players in town. That know similar tunes. Yeah, everybody knows the tunes. Yeah. So one of the things that's maybe frustrating for somebody that's trying to get into it is there's it's not like there's set charts or arrangements because people do songs differently. Mm -hmm. You can bring them, but you know nobody's providing you. This is the way that we always play. You know, Proud Mary or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It'll be different, which is really for me. So this is how I me getting into it. You know, McNally Smith closed. And, you know, I knew Ryan Butler. I knew he was a big part. He's the guy that started Blue Water Kings in, in Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Yep. Yeah. So I forget. I think, you know, he had offered me a gig and I couldn't do it, but I told him I was really interested. And then, you know, there's other people on that list. So I wasn't really doing it. That was when we were doing Nookie Jones, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. And then, you know, McNally Smith is closed now. It's the pandemic. No, no, McNally Smith closed. And then I'm, I think I reached out to Ryan like, hey, I just want to let you know I'm really interested in being a part of this. You know, how do I audition or whatever? And I think I might have gone and auditioned at a showcase, which is a, it w which is a way that we find new musicians. We have them come just play on a showcase, play a couple tunes, and then. So what? What's a showcase though? All right. Isn't sorry. that a, isn't that a thing to like promote the company, yeah. like get people to hire you? Yeah. So. Some bands will do this. You'll go to like a wedding vendor convention and then you'll just pay to set up somewhere and you'll play all day or play sets throughout the day. And then people see you and like you and then want to hire you. Or some bands have like a standing bar gig or something like that. It's kind of low dollar. Our, our strategy is, you know, it's a low dollar gig for the musicians but we rotate who does the gig mm -hmm. also it's a chance for us to put new tunes or old tunes that are new to us in the set like there's there's this tune that was big on tiktok gimme 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 you know i don't um, know that song if i played it do for i know you, that song I probably if i played it for you you'd know it <laughs> anyway it'd just be something that you know people are into at the moment you know and so we we added in during the during the showcase so it's like here's what it is we'll rehearse for an hour we eat we feed the musicians and then we put on just one set for the clients clients can show up and then they can tell us stuff like we really liked this you know vocalist or got to have that saxophone player or whatever sure we, we love the bass player they tell us that and we take new account and then we try to reach out to those if they're musicians. available when those people need them exactly yeah, okay and also you know people book these events a year out so it's like you know somebody could get injured they could move to another city right you right. know anything could happen yeah so we kind of try to steer people away from we tell them you can't pick your band but the good news is uh like for instance right after covid when every weekend the day of an event somebody is calling us producers saying, hey, I got COVID, I can't play. And we have to scramble to find somebody. Scramble. It's somebody that plays has played a million gigs with us, you know, so. Right. So, so the quality's not gonna suffer. Quality doesn't suffer. 
Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. It's like very business, very business. It's making like the, the cover band like a, a humongous business, you know? Mm. Instead of like having, you know, a cover band like what, where there are a few of them in Minneapolis that are really popular that just like gets their gigs because they are a well-known cover band. It's like, this is, this is like a much more broad strokes, like bigger picture, zoom out, it's all over the country. I w yeah, exactly. Yes, in that sense that it's so macro, it's it's you know all over in all the major markets. We're just a portion of the entire whole. But if you zoom in, it's like this is Minneapolis. These are musicians that play together all the time. Yeah, and yeah. it's kind of like um, it feels to me, and maybe that's just me propping up my own company, you know. Sure. But it, it feels like you get on a gig and it's people that you play with all the time. You can be flexible. You can open up a solo here, or you can, you know, you're going to do a double chorus with the singer. Or, sure. You know, who knows? It's going to be could be slightly different, and it's still cool. So it's kind of like it's a little more fresh. Or you could see, you know, a face, a musician that you haven't played with in a long time, and they're on the gig, and it's it's fun. It's exciting. Yeah. So it feels feels like community. Feels like this is. I think so. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. And those gigs pay well. They do. I, I think they do. Yeah. Yeah. It feels that way. I guess from what I've heard, I've been offered those gigs and I've never said yes. But I mean, it seems like they're competitively, you know, paying and, and people actually, musicians actually negotiated for more money at some recent time. Didn't that happen? It's kind of like people were saying we need to get more money. And so we're kind of, we're kind of lumped in with a national chain. Yeah. You know what I mean? We, we can only make certain types of moves, but at the same time, it's like, well, but if we want to get the right kind of musician, then we have to make sure we're competitive against, you know, whatever other band is yeah. paying out right now. So you're be, like being somebody who's so active as a performer in the cities, mm -hmm. you're like playing in tons of different bands. We played together in Nookie Jones, we played all over, we became like a really well-known group. Uh, do you find that there's sometimes like you have to put your business hat on when you do the, the Blue Water Kings thing and like there, it, it, does it, is there any kind of, uh, you know, rub between those two worlds where you're like, hey, I'm this like really guy, this guy who's really easy to work with, who's really reliable and who a lot of people hire and also I'm this guy that like puts together all these bands and people are vying for gigs and trying to get paid and trying to get more money. It's like, there must be some kind of rub there do you find any kind of cognitive dissonance? Yeah, I guess, you know, I would be, you know, there's no, let's say there's no HR department. Yeah. There's no, there is, the HR department. there is kind of a legal department, but there isn't really, you know, I mean, right. There isn't people above it. It's just us, you know, taking the marketing and stuff we're given, generating gigs, giving, you know, putting bands together. Yeah. and making it happen as best as we can. So yeah, you know, I, you, you just, I'm gonna say this, any band leader goes through that same kind of thing. Sure. You know, when you're seeing all the details from this angle, you're gonna have a different perspective than somebody seeing the details from this angle. Right. So if you book bands, you put things together, put shows together, you know, there's always a potential for a little bit of, you know, that, if you're calling cognitive dis dissonance, that kind of conflict. Yeah, right. Interesting.
Yeah, I imagine that would be tough. Uh, that could be that could lead to some tough situations, but we don't have to get deep into that. Um, let's talk a little bit about what we're doing now. All right, we're at the <laughs> we're at the festival here in Bismarck. Um, I've been watching you teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been really fun to see you work with students and. Uh, you do a decent amount of this kind of work. Like for me, this kind of gig, so I'll just describe what we're doing. Uh, University of Mary has this jazz festival and they bring in, this is a whole world of stuff that like people don't even know exists, but it's like a whole market in, in my mind. And like, I would do five to 10 of these events every year and it was like a massive chunk of money coming in every year before COVID hit and now it's starting to come back again. Um, but University of Mary puts on this jazz festival and because you know, it's a university. They're trying to, uh, you know, they can they can use this as a recruitment tool, uh, and they invite all these high schools from all over. They come and they perform at this festival, uh, and typically the way these things go, it's they almost all look the same um, at university festivals. It's like, especially in for me in the Midwest, right? Sure. There's the same kind of vibe in every one I've done, except maybe if you you did Iowa, right? I did Iowa. That yep. was probably a different vibe. Like the jazz championships? Yeah. like the That was way different. That's very different. That's way different. It's like a, yeah, it's like a competitive championship. Like there's a trophy winner at the end yeah. kind of jam. That's like much different than these things. Um, but yeah, like generally speaking, they all look in a really similar way. And the idea is like we bring in tons of high schoolers. We bring in some professionals who have, you know, some notoriety and who can really play and who also have teaching chops, which is like that's a... That could be a rare combo. I think people who can like really play and can really teach. Um, and they work with these high school bands all day long, multiple days. And then in the evenings, usually like the university band will play and the clinicians or the people who are like the guest artists who are us this weekend will perform with the university ensemble or perform with one of the student ensembles or whatever. Um, so they all look like this. And these can pay like if you're the only person on the gig, I mean these can pay five, six, seven thousand dollars for a three, four day chunk of time. Uh, if there's multiple people, it can pay one, two, three thousand dollars. But either way, it's like this is a big chunk of money for for a couple of days of work. They usually fly you in. They're grueling days. Like yesterday was all is like twelve hour day or something. Wild how how long. And you know, the first night too, like I drove in 12 hours because I wanted to drive so that I can go to Minneapolis and do the studio thing and come back and do Fargo Jazz Festival. So like there's another fest festival next weekend that I'm doing. Uh, that's, it's, so in my, in my mind, that's like a, that's like its own economy almost. It's like you could make, there, there are people that just travel around from festival to festival and that's like how they make their whole living, right? Rex Richardson is somebody that does that. It's like constantly festival to festival to orchestra to festival to orchestra, you know? Uh, and this would be like, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars of my yearly income every single year for a long time. Uh, and so, if you're, you know, like if you're listening and you're somebody who's a dynamic performer and educator, I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, but it's like you could start to kind of work your way into these festivals, maybe in, in, you know the high school level first, where you're like going to high schools and being the guest artist there. Those can actually be better in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. which we could talk about, but. Um, you also have a bazillion in your hometown. A bazillion in your hometown. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're building networking relationships with these schools, you're performing regularly. You're showing that you're a performer. Like that's how it happened for me. It was like, 
I had my 18 piece orchestra that was playing my original music and I was playing all these shows and people were like, oh, there's somebody that's in their 20s doing new big band music. Mm -hmm. That's really weird and cool. We need that person at our festival, right? Mm -hmm. It was just, just the novelty of me being a young person doing it what made me like super attractive, I think. Um, so I, I don't know, like, what's, what's your experience doing these festivals? How, much, how many of them do? And then we can talk a little bit about the structure, maybe. Because um, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in, like, how could we reframe this? Or do it differently if, if you're somebody who's at a university. Because they all kind of look in this similar way. And they, and they, they don't function poorly. Like, it's cool. It's just like, I do, when, whenever something looks homogenous, my brain goes like, ooh, how could we blow this up and make it different, you know? So what's your experience doing these kind of festivals? Do you do these a lot? I do. You know, I used to do a ton more of these before, you know, COVID. Yeah. And I feel like some of that is maybe some of the educators I knew back in the day have turned over. Interesting. You know? Retired? Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, because of COVID. Right. So, but yeah, I still do plenty of these events. I love doing them. One of the great things about doing these events as an educator, if you care about being a good teacher, is you get to see, like I get to see my buddy Adam Meckler yeah. fire up a bunch of kids. <laughs> and that's exciting. I get I get to, I see some little tricks and tips and yeah, it's yeah. like, I can take that away. I feel yeah. like that's one of the things when you're in a group of people like this, you can, you can kind of look around and see, oh yeah, there's a there's a bit that's kind of cool that I can I can use, you know? Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, I've done a ton of these over the years. They pay great. It can be rewarding, fun. I like working with kids of all ages yep. and adults. I, you know, I feel like my philosophy is, you know, first and foremost, are people having a good time? Are they fired up about music? Yep. And then are they learning something? So it's like, I see some people, and certainly not at this festival, but I see some people kind of have that attitude like, oh God, here's another, you know, 70 piece middle school yeah. jazz band playing the theme song from Vehicle or something like that. But it's like, look at look at how fired up and excited and happy those kids are to be playing their instruments and, yep. and checking out the music, you know what I mean? Yep. Even if it's, you know, it doesn't matter. So, or you get a weird instrumentation and people, you know, haven't developed skills on their instruments yet. It's like, who cares? It's it's beautiful. These people are like learning how to play their instruments for the first time. Yeah. They're checking out the It's all beautiful. And you never so, know like who will decide like, this is what I want to do yeah. because of their interaction with you. I've certainly had those moments now where students that I worked with when they were young at these festivals are now like, majoring in music in college or they're professionals and it's like whoa or maybe it's somebody that doesn't major in music and just does music as an avocation for their life which should be equally valid you know yeah and that's a big one for me is i have you know students that don't major in music necessarily but continue to participate in music and i when when that happens i see that as one of the biggest successes yeah you know? yeah well i'm working with all non-majors at michigan tech and my thing with them is always like, you don't have to make your music to go play. Mm -hmm. You know, go keep, keep playing. Keep making music, you know? It's like, music is for everybody. <clears throat> everybody should yeah. be able to participate in music. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and it's just like genuinely fun. Yeah. Yeah, and on this festival, we've got Amy Nolte, who 
has a really huge music YouTube channel. She's on the festival. We're getting to play with her tonight, which is really fun. And uh, Greg Yazanowski, who has written like hundreds of charts and sells them all over the world. Um, and has recently retired from the University Academia game. Uh, Bob, man, I don't remember Bob's last name. Good dude. Yeah. He's been fun to watch. He's great with middle schoolers. Um, incredible, incredible at working with kids. Yeah, but I feel the same way. Just like being around these people, like like me and Yaz had a conversation at lunch today where I was just like, how'd you get to where you are? Like, why did you decide to, to you know, he ended up in Washington, but he's like, man, I was in San Francisco Bay Area. And he's like, I was thinking about moving to LA and doing the Hollywood thing because I wanted to be a composer. And he, but it's like, I liked academia. So I thought like, I'll apply for some jobs. My wife was pregnant. He's like, I got to hear, I got to hear about Yaz in his 20s, you know, and Yaz yeah. is like 80 now. Yeah. So it's like cool to to like learn from like be at a festival like this, be around people like you and like like these other people we're with, and like learn, you know, watch you guys teach and yeah. like, ooh, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that, I'm gonna use that. Yeah. So the original question was kind of like, have you done a lot of these? Yep. How did you get into doing them? I think that was part of it too. Yep, right? Yeah. I, I would say you know I kind of took not the same path. I, I would say you writing all that creative big band music is. If, if you want to go that route, that is like the A-plus way to do it, at least right now with the way our education system is. It's like, yeah. it's set up for that. You know, right. you're firing people up with new, really cool music. And I, you know, I look at those college kids and they're having a blast playing your charts, man. Uh -huh. You know, they're into it. Yeah, thanks, man. It's fun, it's, fun to, it's fun to see. It's fun to see. I feel, it's interesting, man. I'm like a little, they, they come up to me and they're like, oh, yeah, I really like your music. And, and I've been watching your YouTube channel and, you know, it's like, whoa, I'm kind of a rock star here. This is kind of fun. <laughs> you know, my students at Michigan Tech, they, I'm old news to them, you know, I'm yeah. hanging with them all the time. They don't care. But, uh, so yeah, how'd you get into it? For me, it was kind of like, you know, I've been a teacher, been in colleges. I think the biggest push for me to get into that was just working at McNally Smith and constantly doing educational outreach. I really got to know tons of band directors, you know, was doing MBDA. For a while I was on the board of MD, MBDA, Minnesota Band Directors Association. Sure, yeah. I was helping organize the, the nine, seven, eight, nine, ten honor jazz band. Um, but yeah, it's like the McNally Smith things, us going out, me and Pete doing clinics, yep. you know, all ages, uh, sending bands to schools, yeah. showing up with my band in the school like yeah really I started cool doing a little bit with you guys when I got there we did like yeah. Farmington High School it was like me you and Pete and Jeff and yeah uh, Schmallenberger yeah it's like that that stuff's just it's invaluable for building those connections right know? right building relationships with band directors yeah. yeah and then if you're doing and you know this I'm just gonna I'm gonna talk about it but it's what you're doing right now well no I'm definitely talking about it let's talk about it it's, it's what you're doing now but when I so I started bringing some stuff into the schools that was not like what people are used to, right? So it started out with, you know, ska ensemble, and I had a killing ska ensemble. It was like... Ska? Yeah, Streetlight Manifesto, and I mean, it was it was like heavy. Awesome. It was awesome. Is that music you liked growing up? Oh, yeah, awesome. for sure. Well, like, you know, that, that era. Yeah, yeah, was into it. 90s? Yeah. Yeah, cool. And that ska ensemble, even though it's like not in the forefront necessarily, the kids that would do that would enjoy it so much. I mean, it was very cool. It was fun. It's awesome. So at any rate, I would take them into schools and people would be like, oh my gosh, this is like, 
definitely not the vibe of whatever the last thing they saw live was of a person that's bringing their combo in or something like that. Right, right, right. So that's kind of exciting. Less traditional. Less traditional. Yeah. And then it was the New Orleans Brass Band, and I'm taking everything that I've learned, and I'm teaching it to these college kids. I'm taking them down to you know, Jazz Fest in New Orleans, and I'm creating kind of this, this new... It's not just me too. There's some other musicians that are, you know, teaching, you know, obviously. Yeah. At any rate, I'm, I've got this ensemble. I'm taking it out to schools, and here's an example like Washburn. Tim Martin's kids see my brass band ensemble. They get fired up, and since then they have their own student-led brass band. Full circle. Two people from that program are at Michigan Tech. Oh, get out, out of my here. Brass band. From Washburn? Yes. Oh, that's not awesome, awesome, man. Trigby wow. Schmidt is a great. Little snare drum player and uh, another kid, Jack, who did did one year and, and it hasn't been back. But yeah, I mean, it's pretty fun to have somebody who had snare drum experience in the brass band style show up at my school and go, "I played with Tim in Tim's band." Yeah, you know, in high school. It's like what, dude? <laughs> you got to be in workshop brass band. That's you know? crazy. Yeah, super fun. The the other little side thing. I didn't realize that you were the impetus for that happening though. That's yeah, cool. it was it was me bringing one of my brass band ensembles there. That's you really know, cool. And just, just blowing it up. You yeah. Know? Which which eventually became, like, it was a McNally brass band? Yeah, so McNancy, so first of all, I'll say McNancy brass band is completely different than that student ensemble was. But the start of McNancy brass band was a student ensemble at McNally Smith's, which was why it was a McNasty. Right. And uh, that was like my first brass band ensemble. For, in fact, it was one of my very first ensembles. I ended up taking it down to New Orleans for you know, <laughs> super cool. You know, it was, it was pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, another, another just side thing real quick, you know, salsa, I play in salsa bands for, or I have played in salsa bands for the past, like something like 20 years or something. Yep. Taken, you know, Shia's Hamburg world drumming classes and stuff and done a million transcriptions of stuff so we can play it, you know. So that's like another skill set that sometimes I'll bring out to a school and I'll have like a jazz band, but we'll play the tune and I'll try to teach it as authentically as I can. And then, you know, maybe have some people come out from the tradition that can like, you know, see if I can get Frank or Shy or something like that to come out and, right. and do, a, do a percussion class. Or if there's a student that knows Spanish, we'll do a Spanish vocal tune. You know, cool. yeah, and I think it's it's those like non traditional kinds of things that when you bring them, you know, to a school and kids aren't used to seeing it, and it's it's fun and exciting. Yeah, it really kind of elevates things for a little bit. Yeah, you know? well, I think students don't understand really that there's other options for their instruments. Like either it's jazz band or it's concert band. If you play like a wind instrument in high school, middle school, high school, it's like those are your options. And it's like, well, then somebody like you or me goes in and goes like, let's learn this Rebirth Brass Band tune by ear. And mm -hmm. it's like a New Orleans thing. And students are like, whoa, mm -hmm. like, what is that? I've had band directors email me like, uh, dude, my students will not stop playing that song. So screw you for that. <laughs> and, you know, like, like, I'm so sick of hearing Hurricane George, you know, like. Well, come on, man. But you're, it's super cool. You've heard that White Stripes tune a million times. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> same different. Same jam. It's just a different tune. Yeah, so, you know, we're talking about modernizing things. Like, how would 
if you had the opportunity, let's say you're running your own jazz program and there's a jazz festival and you have to do a jazz festival every year where you invite high schoolers to the school, how would you, if you could, or if you had to, or if you wanted to, how would you reimagine it to be different? You know, to not be this exact way where we, we sit and every half hour we judge a band, we talk to them for five to 20 minutes, and it's depending on the festival. This festival, you get a lot more one-on-one time with the students, which I think is really valuable and really helpful. And that's a nice model because you actually get to spend some quality time. But there's some festivals where it's like you get five, five, ten minutes, and that's it. And really, the only the, the point is really like the Iowa Jazz Championships. The point is just for the students to perform and for you to rank them. You're not even talking to them. Yeah, I mean that's like crazy. So they get zero educational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. tapes for them. Yeah, I, I I don't remember if. Like the Reach, like the, the, the qualifiers, we did the tapes. I don't remember if we did tapes for actual jazz, like the actual championship. But at any rate, like we probably did, but. Can I, can I just say something real quick? Yeah, yeah. When I, when I was in Texas, we, uh, just speaking of like crazy competition land. Right. Uh, when I was in Texas, for like all region, for instance, it'd be something like five. I, I don't know if this is completely accurate, but it is, the vibe is true. There's like five judges and they would do Olympic scoring. So they would drop the highest and lowest grade. <laughs> that oh was like God. qualifying for all region. Wow. Yeah, that's hardcore. Or maybe it was all region all state, but it was like Olympic scoring. You know? Yeah, competition is much bigger. Like, but at the same time, like whenever I go to the South, I feel like, at least with brass playing, I feel like it's much more mm-hmm. Students are more developed. There's more opportunities. Maybe you know, maybe like you said, you gave the perspective that like, well, they're trying to win competitions, so they're trying to get as many students as they can in private lessons, so the students are better because yeah. they're taking private lessons. So like that makes sense to me. Also, Texas is a big state. It's like some areas are going to have resources to have a humongous band room with practice rooms in it, and yeah. kids that all have means to you know, get private lessons, all, like, every band kid can get private lessons. Right, right, right. And then the band program has scholarships for those that can't. So yeah. It's like, it, it just depends on the area you're in, I'm sure, you know. Yeah. Okay, so you get a gig, you waltz in, mm-hmm. you have total autonomy. You can do whatever you want. People are like, we still want you to do a jazz festival, but you can do whatever you want. What do you do? Or, we still want, we still want you to have a festival. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, first of all, if I really had autonomy, I would not get rid of the combo, wouldn't get rid of the big band, mm-hmm. if it was healthy, you know what I mean? Yep. If it's healthy, that's staying, because people are into Keep it, rolling. they like it. But I would definitely start, there's rock band, whatever I can get people fired up about, whether or not they're majors. I mean, the first thing would be low stakes, it'd be like, can I get a rock band ensemble? That's it. Yeah. Just that. And then just yeah. see if, if there's people from other areas of the college that, you know, are into playing electric guitar and they're like, oh man, I can play in a band? Sweet, you know. That would be number one. And then number two, I might start, I mean, if it was super popular, all of a sudden I have all these suits coming in for rock band ensemble, then it's like we can start looking at... Section two, yeah. indie rock, any yeah. other... Yeah. What, are, what are your interests? Special and then get get them kind of lumped together with what they like. Yeah, yeah. And if I had just you know sky's the limit, let's say it's super popular or generating a lot of revenue for the school, this is like super high in the sky. But then it's like you know 
then I'm getting people from the community that I know that are ridiculous, you know, to teach a specialized ensemble. Right. Kind of like we did at McNally Smith. You know so you're essentially recreating. McNally <laughs> yeah. Smith, for those who don't know, was a modern music school college in St. Paul. Scott and I both worked there. It was like the Berkeley of the Midwest. It was considered very much like a, you know, we had hip hop ensembles and indie rock ensembles. I coached indie rock four. I don't know if you knew that. I played drums in it. It was super fun. We played a bunch of, you know, a bunch of stuff. Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros and <clears throat> stuff that I like. You know, it was fun to play drums in that. Um, but yeah, you're, it seems like you're sort of bordering on that. Uh, just, I, I mean, the playing experience, there's so many people out there, I feel like, that, under, that know what, a, what like a rock band is, popular music, and wanna play it. Yep. So why would you fight that being a route that you would take, you know? Well, it feels to me like the way we have music education system set up now is less of a pipeline to the professional world than it was 70 years ago, mm -hmm. let's say. 60 years ago, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, mm -hmm. even. My wife, Jana, is a band director, and she's in this program that's essentially decimated from COVID. Mm -hmm. And now she's like, uh, like, I should just blow this up anyway. Like, what? why do I have to play this specific set of pieces for this specific competition? Like, what? there is value in it, of course, like, and people like it, you know? And there are community bands for people to play in, and there are still professional bands and orchestras that you can tour with. So it's not like this doesn't exist, but it's way less prevalent than it was. Like, there's no denying that, mm -hmm. you know? There were literally touring jazz big bands mm -hmm. that were touring city to city, making enough money to pay musicians to tour in a big band. That was a thing. That is not a thing anymore, mm -hmm. you know? And it hasn't been for a really long time. Yet, we still have jazz band in school. We still spit out tons of jazz majors every single year with really no plan to get them working and no real skills for them to, this is one of my main beefs so that I talk about on podcasts a lot, mm -hmm. is like, I wasn't taught how to make money. I was and taught how to play trumpet. And stuff. Like, yeah. I wasn't taught how to make money. So, what are we doing, right? Uh, but, you know, Janice thing is like, why don't I just blow this up and do something, like modernize this program somehow so that what the kids learn in school is something that's more applicable to what they might encounter in the world. Mm -hmm. And I feel like learning how to use a DAW in high school or even late middle school mm -hmm. is, is one of those things. Like, you know, let's learn how to use a microphone, learn how to record ourselves, learn how to layer things or make beats or simple things like that that can kind of unlock doors in the future. Uh, things that you're saying, like, how about a rock band, you know? Yeah. Like, I was thinking about doing a funk band at Michigan Tech where it was like, you know, four or five horns and then like a couple singers and keys and guitar. It's like, those are those are gigs that you could get and work three, four times a month mm -hmm. in any city if you know all that rep and you've got experience doing that, you know? It's like, these are like people, anybody could go and get those gigs or start a band that does these bar gigs and makes decent money. If you got a rhythm section player that can sing lead vocals, play, and bring a PA, you got you got some gigs for them. They're gonna make so much money. Yeah, you know. Yeah, come yeah. on. That's 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 really interesting to me. So like, what's stopping us as a 
whole from updating this system. So actually, we were kind of just chit-chatting this idea yep. the other day, and I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about what I know about the other side of the administrative side, and it's like, you know, you're in a college, uh, and it, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying all colleges are struggling right now because they're not, but I mean, I'm sure people are really seriously looking at finances right now with just coming off COVID, the birth rates are way down because of, you know, 2008 or whenever. Yeah, the Great Recession, yeah. Yeah, so it's like birth rates, there's not as many people going to college. There's some people that might be questioning if college is even worth it, especially for music. Totally. You know, so it's like, let's say numbers are down, we're looking at finances, and it's, you know, it, I now that I'm thinking, it's like it would be a hard sell to go away from, well, there's an ensemble that's got 50 kids in it, and instead of that, we're pushing for ensembles with eight kids in it. Yeah, interesting. You know what I'm saying? Sure. And sure. I, 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 it was we chit chatted about that. I was like, why, why is such a low stakes thing as having a rock band that you could just cancel if it didn't populate? And it's like, well, because you're just creating more small classes. I bet. Yeah, which have to be covered, which take an hour by themselves. When in realistic, you know, realistically, like a. A concert band could have 65 students in it and also take that same hour yeah so it's much less efficient yeah so you have if anybody's struggling financially I'm sure they're looking at you know maybe we can do more online stuff where we can get the class sizes bigger after offer general kinds of things that interest what interests the mo maximum amount of students and yeah, yeah will count towards their credits you know I'm sure the, that that's like the the bean counters are thinking about that kind of thing. Well, it's interesting too, because like, if you do something online or you do something that is uh, directed, that's sort of self-directed in some way, especially at the university level, mm -hmm. it's like there is opportunity to fill those classes with hundreds of students, mm -hmm. potentially. You know, like if you have something, like I, I taught this class uh, that was developed by Toby Cohensberg. You know, Toby, uh, I think it's the University of Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, it's called Popular Songwriting. And I taught it this semester. And he basically has like the whole course lined up for you, like the syllabus, the Canvas course, everything, that you can just plug in. It's like a plug and play. And then you kind of like, you record videos along the way. Uh, as a faculty member, you like, he has a script for you to read. I mean, it's like super slick. Oh, he's got the script for you. Never yeah, I mean, it's all Here's there. Teach it. Yep. All wow. there, and he goes. I use TAs for this and this. If you have any questions, I have a team of people. He's got like a team of people that work on it because it's mm -hmm. become this massive thing. And the University of Oregon likes that, you know, his course is being used all over, and University of Oregon is kind of like has their stamp on it. But also, like he wrote a book, and every student that takes the course has to buy the book to do the course. Mm -hmm. So that's how Toby makes money, right? That's like a big money maker, I think, for him. Um, I taught it, and I had a bunch of students register. But the idea is that, like, any person with zero music experience, any person could take this class. You learn a little bit about the history of pop music. You learn a little bit about lyricism. You learn a little bit about Dawes. You, like, you pick, you pick a track, either GarageBand or Ableton, and you learn one or the other. And then you very, very systematically, step-by-step, step, learn how to create a track, learn how to enter in using the keyboard. You learn how to, like, enter notes. Um, using MIDI, you know, you learn how to choose instruments, you download sample packs, and do the whole thing. 
And by the end of the class, students are making these like really cool pop songs, mm -hmm. you know, multiple four or five different songs by the end of the course. Um, that and what he told me was that at University of Oregon, that's by far their most popular class. They got 500 enrollees every single semester. And it's a huge pipeline for like getting people into the music program there because people go like, oh, I really liked this. Maybe I should major in audio production or maybe I should major in sound design or whatever, you know? So that's that's an interesting angle yeah. to like keep the numbers big and still modernize. Yeah. But it's also like, it requires, there's some access issues, right? There's some, it's like there, yeah, it requires like technology. to do Ableton and it's 500 people, Ableton or GarageBand. Mm -hmm. You have computers that they have, have to have their own computers. Connected. Yep, they have to buy the software, they have to buy the book. So or there's, at a, there's least a, a lab system set up that that many people can access right. in a week, you know? Right, right, right. Rotating access if they need in person access. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, Janet's school up in up in the UP has started to do this, where they they're working with students on Ableton, but their school is small and it's like small numbers, you know, so they don't have dealing with that issue. Uh, but she's simultaneously running concert band. It's like it's not like she's given up on running concert band. It's like let's also add this extra thing in, mm -hmm. where that we could have this guitar ensemble, we could have this, you know, this Ableton course where people learn how to make little beats or whatever. I think that's a pretty cool that's awesome. angle. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah, so just kind of going back to that original idea, I think I think we're kind of dancing around the same thing as, man, it would be nice to see. I don't want to get rid of the traditional thing. If people are if people are fired up about music, that's what's important. You know, that's how you're gonna participate. Great. You love it, great. But you don't want to cut out all those other people out there that want to participate in music in a different way. And that's like, I think that's having discussions like this and, you know, having some, I mean, man, if somebody's getting 500 people to take an online course, create music and get fired up about music, I think that's incredible. Yeah. No, you know, it doesn't matter how it happens. If it's, if it's working, I think that's fantastic. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I guess we solved all those problems on huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> I was going to say earlier, you, you were talking about uh, working these festivals and and uh, having people kind of sometimes not be super into the idea that like there's a gigantic middle school band mm -hmm. and kind of being like, ugh, ugh, yeah. I just want to work with, you know, and I, I, I get that like, playing vehicle or whatever. I did a, um, I'm gonna say his name because he's, he's a very public figure and it's probably fine. <laughs> and he's very, he's very vocal. Um, Dave King, mm -hmm. I did a festival with Dave King. Amazing drummer, really funny, human in general and I was greatly impacted by a time that he came into Lawrence University when I was doing my undergraduate degree mm -hmm. and he came in and like my combo played for him and he worked with us for a while and it was like really memorable I remember a whole bunch of the things that he said and I we ended up on the same festival working the same festival and uh and I told him this story like like, dude, you came to my school, man, you changed my life. Like, mm -hmm. I love your music, man. Well, you know, it's like, Happy Apple, oh my God, you know? Yeah. And um, I was like obsessed with Happy Apple for a long time. And so it was super fun to work with him. And there's this band up there playing, this is this kind of festival, like a combo came and played. And it was like, the students didn't look super into it, mm -hmm. you know? And he leaned over to me, it's like, as soon as they started playing, and he was like, look, man, I helped you 
you gotta help me right now, man. You gotta help me. I can't, I can't talk to these kids. I can't talk to these kids. He's like, you gotta go do it. You gotta go do it. And I was like, all right, I got you, I got you, I got you. You know, it's like he couldn't, he couldn't deal with kids like we're not into it. You know, it's like he needs people to already kind of have that flame to, yeah. to for him to want to cultivate it. Uh, but it was pretty funny. And then, you know, the, the wild part was like I went up there, I was working with them, and he he finally walked up like halfway through. He's like, all right, all right, all right, yeah, you know. It's like, like, all right, all right, all right. Yeah, I got, yeah. I got to say something, you know. You got, you got him warmed up. Yeah. <laughs> the, ba- the bass player's like, <laughs> bass player's like leaning on her bass. She's just like, kind of, she's looking bored. Uh-huh. And he looks at her and he goes, I know, right? I know. Just bo- you're so bored, right? It's so boring, isn't it? You know, he's like already just like going after them. It's like young kids. I was like, whoa, dude. Uh, but you know, it was interesting. And he goes, he goes, you know, I'd rather. I don't even know what she says. He goes, I'd rather sit in a padded room listening to bad country music while someone chokes me than listen to bad jazz. <laughs> That's what he said. It's like a high school group. Oh, man. I was like, dang, dude. What? But it was like, it was just a funny moment, you know? And then he kind of wrapped it around and started started teaching them a little bit. But it was like, he needed them to go like, look, you're like, if you're not into this, what are you doing here? Somebody said, "Like, what are you doing here? If you're not into this, what are you doing here?" And and when so, somebody's so passionate, it's like they're obsessed with the music, and that's how they got to where they are. They're at this really super high level as an artist. I can see how that would be a frustrating experience, yeah. you know, working with students like that. Our job is to go, "All right, guys, let's get you fired up." Yeah, you know, and like we're both, I think, wired that way. Yeah, like, we're gonna fire you up if you're not already. Yeah. You know, I want to see. I want to see some smiles. I want to see see some people laughing. Yeah, and I want to see hopefully people get better. You know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, interesting. So, what's you got planned coming up here? Well, I got this gig later today. Later today, <laughs> who are you playing with? We playing with Adam Meckler, man. Hey, let's go. Yeah, that'll be that's, fun. That's that's pretty much that's it. That's the long and short of it. There's a there's a one thing that has changed my life for the better yeah and that is of course my wife jill has changed my life for the better yeah has affected me and changed me and shaped me and made me a better person one one of the ways she's done that is you know there's something about being in the darkness of minnesota winter all winter you know yeah definitely no sunlight Mm-hmm. It's cold. You're indoors. No UV you know. rays. No UV rays. So it, it's like there was just a decision a couple of years ago. Actually, like right before COVID, we went to Thailand. You know, mm. right? It was it was maybe the first week of February. Whatever it was, it was COVID was becoming a problem while we were in Thailand, and we got out of Thailand with my Australian sister saying you guys should leave right now because they were locking down Australia, wow. you know? So, but we, we got the trip in, you know? Wow. Um, but this is, this is kind of new for me. I'm, I'm like the type of person that it's like grains of sand in hourglass. I'll just come up with stuff for myself to do until I have no time left. I filled it completely. Yeah. It's liquid. It's not even sand, <laughs> you know? And, and Joel's just like, you know, you could just figure out ahead of time how to take some time in the middle of February 
and we can save up money and just go somewhere. So I'm going to Portugal, and I think you know, it's, oh man, it's easy to think about the kind of you know everything's about the work, but there is something about there's something to look forward to that's not work. Yep. kind of pops your head up out of the sand and wakes you up for a second. Mm -hmm. So when you go back to work, you're kind of refreshed, you know? Yeah, totally. Do you find that, like, you take that break and you come back and you're more motivated to, oh. like, as an artist, making new music, like... It's 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 kind of like you got a good night's sleep for once. It's yeah. that kind of feeling, yeah. you know? So I would never do this on my own, but Joel is kind of helps remind me to be also a human being from time to time yeah so. yeah i had that same syndrome to just fill it fill it up mm -hmm. just fill up the schedule fill everything up as much as possible yeah and then grind grind yeah yeah so i guess that's that's kind of a newer thing for me it's just advocate for try to give yourself a human experience at least once a year yeah know? yeah something cool you know i like that yeah nice man that's a nice way to end it dude thanks for doing this Hey, man. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. We did it. We did it. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Scott Agster. Please, if you dig the show, send this episode to a friend. Hit like or subscribe wherever you listen. We've got a YouTube channel called How Musicians Make It. And it really helps us the best when you like just tell a friend. Tell a friend. Copy the link. Send it to somebody. And, uh, and hit subscribe. We appreciate you all listening very much. Lots more great episodes coming. Peace. <laughs>